Section 2 of Narrative of the Suffering and Defeat of the Northwestern Army under General Winchester. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 2 Captain Watson, who was an eyewitness, states that after crossing the river they attempted to form and give battle, but the houses being in the way they failed in the attempt. They then retreated through a lane for one hundred yards, on the sides of which a number of Indians were placed who injured them very much. He, though wounded, joined in the retreat. He further states that the Indians pursued on each side for about one mile. They then fell back in the rear. He then saw Colonel Lewis and requested him to form the men and make a stand against the Indians once more, as many of the men were wounded and could retreat no farther. The attempt was made without success, as many were without arms. He afterwards saw General Winchester and begged of him for God's sake to make a stand, as the Indians were in close pursuit, and he himself was much exhausted and was convinced that many more were in the same condition. The General informed him that the men could not be rallied. After retreating about three miles from Raisin, they came to a field. Those on foot passed through and those on horseback rode around. Here Captain Watson, General Winchester, Colonel Lewis, Dr. Irvine, and Dr. Patrick were seen going slowly forward, their horses much fatigued, and a number of Indians pursuing on fresh horses who soon overtook them. Captain Watson, seeing the Indians within one hundred yards of him, slipped through a fence and pulled off his shoes ran along the fence in a stooping position about sixty yards and hid himself in some high grass the indians continued to pursue those who were before he thinks there were not more than fifty men ahead of him after the indians had passed by the captain moved to a prairie where he concealed himself until dark and then pushed on to the rapids keeping the road a distance to the right mr newell one of captain watson's company concealed himself in a barn near to where the indians returned his account is that they had a number of scalps tied to their saddles and a number also of our men tied he left the barn on the twenty-third at night lost his way and went back to the river raisin in the night he was then informed that all who stood their ground had been taken prisoners and that but few had been killed it is due to the memory of dr davis to notice a circumstance which was related by one of the wounded he stated that at the commencement of the action he took a gun belonging to a companion of his also wounded and moved forward to join the company the doctor seeing him said give me the gun your situation will not allow you to expose yourself and went himself into the engagement showing his promptness in every part of duty whether in dressing the wounded or in facing the enemy as a private soldier i made inquiry of all the prisoners which i could see about colonel allen and captain simpson but could hear nothing satisfactory i spent a year in prison with several men who were in the retreating party and often heard them relate what they knew of that sad affair 
but as they did not belong to our company and were not personally acquainted with colonel allen and captain simpson and as they were in such a state of alarm all around being dismay and confusion they could not particularly notice any person but directed their whole attention toward their own personal safety perhaps the whole truth relating to those brave men who fell in the retreating party will never be known it has been related that captain simpson fell not far from the mouth of the lane through which the troops had just passed it has also been stated of colonel allen after making several unsuccessful efforts to rally his men entreating them to halt and to sell their lives as dearly as possible that he had retreated about two miles until he was exhausted he then sat down upon the log and resigned himself up to his fate an indian chief perceiving him to be an officer of distinction was anxious to make him a prisoner as soon as he came to the colonel he threw his gun across his lap and told him in indian to surrender and he should be safe another savage having advanced with a hostile appearance colonel allen with one stroke of his sword laid him dead at his feet a third indian had the honor of shooting one of the first and bravest men of kentucky before we leave the retreating party it may not be out of place to record two circumstances which show the estimate which the indians set upon bravery and also how they treat cowardice the circumstances were related to me as follows a young man after the indians had taken him prisoner and appeared inclined to save his life showed great alarm and at length told the indians that he would tell them where they might find a great many white men and might kill them all etc the indians instantly took his life although until then they had showed no hostility toward him the other related to the narrator himself he stated that after the indians took him prisoner they marched him very hard until he became so much exhausted that he was no longer able to travel as fast as they wished him to go they shook their tomahawks at him and told him that he must march faster or die he was starving and sick but he kept on as fast and as far as he could and when he could go no farther he laid down upon the ground and told them to kill him they motioned with their weapons as if they intended to take his life but when they saw his resolution they became attached to him and aided him all they could to go on the journey and were kind to him as long as he remained with them after the british had withdrawn their forces from our front and the indians had mostly disappeared and the firing save a few scattering guns from some scouting indians had ceased the situation of the retreating party became a matter of anxious concern with colonel lewis's detachment which was left within the picketing some were heard to express their fears that they were generally cut off because of the firing heard in that direction during all the time the troops within the pickets stood to their posts and now in this critical moment fully sustained the character of brave kentuckians majors madison and garrard when the ammunition grew short in the cartridge boxes were employed busily to furnish the men with a supply carrying them around in their pocket handkerchiefs and strewing them upon the ground at the soldiers feet and at the same time exhorting them never to think of surrender some of our brave men fell by a party of savages 
coming up under the north bank of the river from the house containing the wounded they were discovered information was given immediately and by a detachment they were soon routed the firing now had ceased except a shot as an indian was seen passing about the men had to keep a strict lookout to prevent surprise as the indians were skulking about and no one felt safe for a single moment after the cannon which had been placed down the river about two hundred yards had ceased firing the horse and driver which supplied the ammunition being killed those of us who had received wounds in the battle myself among the rest proceeded to take our breakfasts of a little light bread this was all that we could procure all the while we were at a loss to know why the british troops had been withdrawn to the woods and the indians left alone to contend by themselves but we afterwards learned that they were awaiting the return of the indians who had pursued the retreating party when they returned they brought general winchester and colonel lewis with them as soon as general proctor the british commander heard that general winchester was taken he basely determined to take advantage of it and thereby procure the surrender of all those within the picketing he represented to the general that nothing but an immediate surrender could save the americans from an indiscriminate indian massacre it was not until the flag approached borne by major overton one of the general's aides bringing orders from general winchester to surrender that we dreamed that the general or colonel lewis were prisoners when this news reached the troops that general winchester had surrendered the whole as prisoners to the british it was like a shock of lightning from one end of the lines to the other a number declared that they never would submit let the consequences be what they might but when they found that majors madison and garrard had consented to obey the orders of general winchester some of them in great rage threw down their guns with such force as to shiver the stocks from the barrels when the flag above named was first discovered to advance various conjectures were entertained of the design the greater number supposed that the enemy was tired of the game and wished to quit and desired permission to bury the dead which were not few there were also many badly wounded it was plain to discover where their lines had been formed by the number of killed and wounded still lying on the field when major madison approached the flag colonel proctor with great haughtiness demanded an immediate surrender or he would set the town on fire and that the indians should not be restrained from committing an indiscriminate massacre major madison observed that it had been customary for the indians to massacre the wounded prisoners after a surrender and that he could not agree to any capitulation which general winchester might direct unless the safety and protection of his men were secured colonel proctor then said sir do you mean to dictate for me no replied madison i mean to dictate for myself and we prefer to sell our lives as dearly as possible rather than be massacred in cold blood proctor then agreed to receive a surrender upon the terms that all private property should be respected that sleds should be sent next morning to remove the sick and wounded to amherstsburg and that in the meantime they should be protected by a guard and the side-arms should be restored to the officers at malden but this unprincipled deceiver bearing the title of general 
suffered the savages to violate the treaty before his own eyes whilst the men were in parade to surrender their arms in order the indians began to tear up the tents and to plunder in every direction gathering up everything in the shape of clothing and every knapsack which they could find i could not bear arms from my wound and whilst the men were on parade some time before they were marched off i was passing about and noticing the movements and work of the indians they were striving who should get the most plunder i passed around to the front of the house to take a look at the boys before they left us they braved it off as well as might have been expected some looked a little dejected others joked and laughed one who had not yet fallen into the ranks was standing upon a stile block and said to the english well you have taken the greatest set of gamecocks that ever came from kentuck i wish i could remember his name he was calculated to remind one of a gamecock john locke and jesse fisher of our company were badly wounded and as both proctor and elliot had promised to send sleds for us in the morning and though able to walk myself i resolved to risk it and stay and assist those who were not able to help themselves captain hart of lexington kentucky expressed great anxiety to be taken with the prisoners to malden his men offered to carry him and were reluctant to leave him behind but colonel elliot the commander of the indians being well acquainted with hart and his family having his former life received great favors from them in kentucky assured him that he need not be under the least apprehension of danger that the indians would not molest those that were left and that upon the honor of a soldier he would send his own sleigh for him on the next morning and have him conveyed to malden some of the more discerning apprehended great danger in being left and insisted on all that could go to do so the brave captain hickman saw the danger and desired all that could walk not to remain for he said to mr halton now captain halton there are more of us here now than will ever get away this from what i could afterwards learn was the sentiment entertained and expressed by all the officers but what could they do in their wounded and defenceless condition being no doubt doomed to death by the infamous proctor and elliot these brave officers and soldiers who had battled against the very elements for months and had passed through sufferings almost equal to death itself lived through it all only to meet the most horrid of all deaths of being butchered in cold blood and that without having the power or means of defence the parting was a solemn one and not only solemn but in reference to most of those unhappy victims it was final many were greatly affected especially the friends of hart and hickman but having fallen into the hands of a bloody and heartless tyrant this brave spartan band were compelled to submit to his cruel dictates no time was now to be lost all eyes were directed towards the rapids the cowardly proctor dreaded the approach of general harrison and therefore made all possible speed to get out of his way fearing to meet so brave and experienced an officer and well he might for the sight of general harrison at that time would have been death to the hopes and prospects of these red and white savages while it would have been a jubilee to those hapless kentuckians who were doomed to death 
after a few formalities of delivering up arms etc they were hurried off and driven like so many beasts to market but with much less tenderness and kindness than a merciful man would show to his beast after their arrival at malden they were crowded into a pen and there guarded without anything to protect them from the weather their bread what little they got was thrown to them like throwing corn to swine though there was a much shorter route by which the prisoners might have been returned to their own country yet this did not satisfy these wanton tyrants nothing would do but the prisoners must in the dead of winter march on foot up detroit river thence up the thames to delaware town thence across the country to burlington heights and from this point to fort niagara a distance perhaps of five hundred miles when the whole could have been accomplished in about two days march by sending them back to the rapids where they would have fallen in with their friends at once but no nothing but the infliction of suffering would satisfy those cruel tyrants these things are but barely mentioned that the attention of the young and rising generation may be led to reflect upon them and that they may have some knowledge of what their fathers suffered in defence of the liberties they now so richly enjoy after the men were marched off everything was quiet now and then an indian was seen straying about as though seeking plunder they did not manifest hostility and our fears began to subside and we hoped to be conveyed to the army on the next morning doctors todd and bowers were left to take care of the wounded major reynolds and three interpreters composed the only guard to protect the wounded from the savages we were hoping that general harrison then on his way from the rapids would just at that time arrive and give us relief by his reinforcement major reynolds was evidently uneasy lest harrison should arrive some of the indians stayed in town until late in the night major reynolds and the interpreters left some time in the night at least they left our house and we saw them no more as night came on our fears began to increase an indian came into the house and told us that he thought there was danger to be feared from some indians which he thought were disposed to do mischief he manifested some uneasiness himself perhaps fearing that some indian might shoot into the house he appeared to be well acquainted with the affairs of the indians in general and had some knowledge of the movements and designs of the british and american armies which he was not at all backward in expressing he spoke the english language fluently and from his manners i would infer that he had spent much of his life with the white population his principal object seems to have been to gain all the information possible about general harrison and the strength of the northwestern army it is probable however that another object of his visit was to find out from us whether we thought it probable that general harrison would advance immediately with the main body of his army to make an attack upon malden he gained but little information from us there was but one man of our company thoughtless enough to give any correct information whose name i shall not mention he told us many things about tecumseh and the indians from the north that were coming to join them in the spring he seemed to entertain no doubt but that they would when all their forces were brought together find it an easy matter to conquer all the armies the united states could send to the north 
after remaining in our room about two hours he very politely bid us good-night and left us after the departure of this indian chief for i have but little doubt but what he was among the principal leaders of the indian forces some conversation ensued among ourselves in reference to the designs of this crafty and intelligent chief there was as well as i can recollect but one opinion expressed on the subject and i believe it was the opinion of all that that would be the last night with most of us we dreaded an attack during the night for this indian just as he left said i am afraid some of the mischievous boys will do some mischief before morning after remaining in this state of suspense for more than an hour expecting every moment that the savages would come rushing upon us but everything becoming quiet we lay down upon our blankets to rest but rested very little during this dismal night dreadful as was the night the morning was more fearful just as the sun had risen upon us and our hopes began to rise and just as we were about to eat the morsel of bread left us by our friends who had been marched off the day before that we might be ready at a moment's warning to leave should the british send sleighs for us we heard a noise in the passage and before we had time to think the door of our room was forced open by an indian who entered with tomahawk in hand ready to commence his bloody work he was quickly followed by others their first object was plunder they had no sooner entered the door of our room than they began in the most cruel manner to strip the blankets and clothes off the wounded as they lay upon the floor fortunately for me i was at the opposite side of the room from the door at which the indians entered near a door leading into the front room of the house and finding there was no time to lose i immediately passed out into the front room where i met one of the most savage-looking indians i ever beheld his very appearance was enough to terrify the stoutest heart his face painted as black as charcoal could make it plainly indicative of his deadly design a bunch of long feathers fastened on his head almost as large as half a bushel a large tomahawk the instrument of death in his right hand a scalping knife fastened to his belt he instantly seized me by the collar and led me out at the front door at first i manifested some unwillingness to go with him he then spoke very earnestly in his own language and at the same time pulled me along forcibly as if to remove me from the scene of death within he led me through the front gate and down the river about one hundred yards to the other houses in which were captains hart hickman and others after leading me through the front gate he left me just at this time captain hart came out of his room barefooted with nothing on but shirt and drawers in this condition he stood in the snow for some length of time pleading for his life i here met with the chief who had been in our room the evening captain hart understanding the designs of proctor and elliot and knowing that the only possible chance for life under the circumstances was to make some arrangement with the indians for this purpose he sought an interview with this one as he seemed to be a leader and very intelligent they met in the front yard near the gate about the time i came in i stood by and heard the conversation captain hart's first remark 
if I mistake not, was that he was an acquaintance of Colonel Elliot's, and that he, Elliot, had promised to send his own sleigh for him. The Indian replied, Elliot has deceived you. He does not intend to fulfill his promise. Well, said Captain Hart, if you will agree to take me, I'll give you a horse or a hundred dollars. You shall have it on our arrival at Malden, the Indian said. I cannot take you. Why, asked Captain Hart, you are too badly wounded, said the Indian. Captain Hart then asked the Indian what they intended to do with them. Boys, said the Indian, raising himself up into an attitude, an air of consequence and insult, you are all to be killed, though involved in the same calamity myself. I could but notice the calmness and composure with which the brave officer received the sentence of death. The only reply which I heard him make was in the language of prayer to Almighty God to sustain him in this hour of trial. Feeling that the awful sentence included myself as well as all the rest, my heart seemed to sink within me, expecting every moment to receive the fatal blow. Just at this moment an Indian dragged Captain Hickman out of the house by one arm and threw him down near where I stood with his face on the snow. He was tomahawked, but not yet dead. He lay strangling in his blood. From this scene I turned away, and walking round the end of the house towards the back yard, met an Indian at the corner of the house, who took hold of me, and searched my pockets for money, but finding none passed on. I then passed on round the house, leaving the main building on my right, and walking slowly, that I might not appear to have any design, and that I might not attract the attention of the enemy. I thought, possibly, I might reach a small log building, which I discovered not far from the house. As there was but one small entrance into it, and as it appeared dark within, it seemed to present the only possible refuge. And as there was no time to lose, and as life and death were depending, I determined to make the attempt to gain this place of retreat. But as I was within a few paces of my hiding place, an Indian coming from the opposite direction met me, and taking hold of me asked me where I was wounded. I placed my hand upon my shoulder. He then felt of it, and finding that the wound was not bad, he took me back to the house where he had deposited his plunder, put a blanket around me, gave me a hat, then took me to the back door of the house in which the wounded lay, and gave me his gun and plunder in charge. In a moment everything seemed to wear a different aspect. I now experienced one of those sudden transitions of mind, impossible to be either conceived or expressed, except by those whose unhappy lot it has been to be placed in like circumstances. Until now, despair had spread its gloomy mantle over me, but hope, that cheering companion, again visited my sinking heart, and I again saw a faint prospect that my life might be spared. Thus situated, I had time to see what was passing around me. I had command of the way leading to Malden, and I saw but one road. 
I remained in this position about two hours, during which time I saw several pass, I suppose all who were able. Here I saw a striking example of the estimate a man places on life. I saw some of our own company, old acquaintances who were so badly wounded that they could scarcely be moved in their beds, understanding that those who could not travel on foot to Malden were all to be tomahawked, passed on their way to Malden, hobbling along on sticks. Poor fellows, they were soon overtaken by their merciless enemies and inhumanely butchered. A few moments after, being placed here by the Indian who claimed me, another Indian set fire to the house. The fire was built in the passage near the back door where I stood. After the fire had taken considerable hold of the house, an Indian came running downstairs with a keg of powder in his hand, with the head out. Just as he got to the foot of the stairs, his foot slipped, and he come very near falling into the fire with the powder. Had the powder caught, both he and I would have perished. The general opinion, I believe, is in reference to Captain Hart, that an Indian engaged to take him to Malden, and that another Indian, unwilling that he should go, shot him on the road. This may be true, but has always appeared to me improbable. From the position I occupied, having commanded the way to Malden, I believe I saw all who passed in that direction, but saw nothing of Captain Hart. Upon the whole, I am induced to think that Captain Hart met his fate in the front yard where I left him. I remained here until the roof of the house set on fire had fallen in. I heard no cry within from which I inferred that the wounded were killed before the house was burnt. My Indian finally returned, bringing with him one of the United States pack horses, and placing his bundle of plunder on him, gave me the bridle, making signs to march on towards Malden. I soon found the bodies of those poor hapless boys who had made the attempt, but were too badly wounded to travel, massacred, scalped, and stripped. When we reached the woods, we halted a short time by the fire. We then went on to Stony Creek, where the British had encamped the night before the battle. Their wounded were still there, waiting to be conveyed to Malden. Here the Indians made a large fire of rails, and gave the prisoners some bread. Our number was eight or ten. As we were eating, one of the Indians deliberately walked up to his prisoner, a fine-looking young man, a son of Dr. Blythe of Lexington, and struck the tomahawk into his head. Though involved in the same calamity myself, I could but notice the calmness and composure with which the brave officer received the sentence of death after he had fallen and received two or three strokes from the hand of the indian an old frenchman took the weapon out of the hand of the savage and gave the dying man another stroke upon the head which stilled him in death footnote having marked the place where this old frenchman lived in order that i might the more readily find him should i ever be permitted to visit the country again and having taken particular notice of the house, I found no difficulty in ascertaining its location, and even the very 
habitation in which the old tory resided after the lapse of about eighteen months from the time i was there a prisoner with the indians i was there again under general macarthur who commanded a regiment of mounted volunteers one battalion of which was from kentucky under the command of major peter dudley passing by this old man's house in company with benjamin whittaker our lieutenant we met this man in the street near his own house i immediately recognized him as the individual who had so inhumanely assisted in the massacre of young mr blythe at stony creek i mentioned the circumstance to whittaker and asked his advice in reference to the course best to be pursued who instantly replied let us take him i was glad of the opportunity and forthwith approached him and the first salutation as near as i can recollect was well sir do you know anything of me his reply was no sir i know nothing about you well sir said i i know you very well he seemed at first to be somewhat surprised at my confident address and looking at me very earnestly seemed to express some doubt on the subject i however soon removed the old man doubts by remarking to him you are the man who was guilty of the cruel and inhumane act of assisting the savages in killing one of the prisoners at stony creek taken at raisin january twenty third eighteen thirteen you are the very man sir and i saw you do it these words come upon him no doubt very unexpectedly and being seconded by the voice of conscience within made him tremble he discovered evident marks of fear his countenance grew pale in an instant and finding that his very fear had betrayed him he did not deny it but offered as an excuse that the indians required it of him and that he was afraid to refuse this excuse however did not satisfy us we considered that as a citizen of detroit he had no business with the british army in time of battle we therefore took him without any further ceremony about it and delivered him over to the proper authorities he was confined in jail for eight or ten days and then brought out for trial i of course was the only evidence that appeared against him he pled the same excuse he did when we first arrested him after nearly a whole day's managing in the matter between the lawyers and the jury and after alarming the old fellow nearly to death they acquitted him i soon found that this circumstance had enraged the french population against me particularly the old catholic french i therefore found it necessary when going alone up town to take my gun with me well loaded this i considered a sufficient protection against any attack from that quarter End of footnote. this greatly alarmed us there appeared to be nothing in his case that we could see that made it necessary for him to die and not the rest of us we now expected every moment to share the same barbarity one of our company a young man by the name of jones was so terrified that he began to weep and moved to the opposite side of the fire thinking that those nearest to the danger would be the first victims we urged him to be still and not to discover such marks of fear or that he would certainly be killed the indian who had taken me and claimed me as his 
was at this time a few steps from us adjusting his pack i stepped up to him and asked him if they were going to kill us all he answered yes i went back to the fire and tried to eat as well as i could without an appetite it was now about two o'clock p m and having eaten but little for three days past and that day had taken nothing until we arrived at stony creek but this awful cold-blooded butchery took away all desire for food i soon saw that he did not understand my question and i was then somewhat relieved it has been said and perhaps with due regard to truth that many of the indians engaged in this dreadful havoc were under the influence of rum they were supplied with it by the british and when under its influence were more savage than savages we now took up our march towards malden leaving some of the indians and their prisoners behind some of them i saw no more they may have shared the same fate at the fire as the young man above he was as able to travel as any of us being only slightly wounded he had no shoes this may have been the reason why they did not take him on we had gone but a short distance until we came to a number of indians who were dancing the war dance around the fire here some of them had encamped on the night before the battle as soon as we arrived i saw that the indians were drunk here my fears were again alarmed being in the midst of a savage camp dancing the war dance the blood of scores fresh upon them and under the influence of strong drink whilst my indian kept sober i had some hopes of protection it was not long however until i saw him go into the dance and begin to drink now i almost yielded myself up to despair as i stood holding his horse with a sad countenance he came to me and gave me a roasted potato he also made some expression of friendship which once more tended to relieve my drooping hopes the indians having finished their dance we proceeded towards malden and at night we encamped in the woods upon the snow we took supper upon a piece cut from the side of a hog boiled with the hair on without bread and without salt it rained during the night and our situation was anything but agreeable yet i felt thankful that it was no worse many strange reflections rolled across my mind during the evening the scenes of the day such as i had never before witnessed would occasionally force themselves upon my mind the tendency of which was to spread a gloom upon everything around me and to heighten my fears we were in a dense forest removed from the sight of any habitation of man the snow about eighteen inches deep the rain making it still more insupportable i kept my eyes upon the indians particularly the one to whom i belonged watching every motion every step and expression of his countenance as the shades of night began to close upon our gloomy retreat it seemed to shed a double horror upon the scene the sad and heart-chilling thought would in spite of all the efforts i could make to frown it back intrude itself upon me that i had been saved from the massacre only to meet a more horrid fate 
that the fire they had kindled was perhaps to serve the double purpose of cooking their supper and roasting me to death whenever any of the company would take his tomahawk in his hand the thought would instantly spring up now i am gone this take it altogether was among the most trying scenes through which i passed during my imprisonment not that i was actually in more danger but taking all the circumstances together the place the time and being separated from my friends in suffering and being thrown alone and for the first time to be secluded from all but a few savages whose hands were yet stained with the blood of my countrymen and not knowing the moment my own might be shed produced emotions extremely distressing and trying after we had eaten the indians began to make preparations for lodging by scraping away the snow and placing bark down upon which to spread their blankets they suspended a blanket by means of a few poles so as to keep the rain out of our faces after engaging themselves in conversation for some time which they seemed to enjoy exceedingly and which was occasionally accompanied with loud exultations the proposition was made to retire for the night my feelings now became indescribable strange as it may appear i was apprehensive that after i fell asleep they would take that opportunity to dispatch me a death of this kind appeared to me the most dreadful of all others with these feelings by their direction i lay down and knowing that they were careful to save all articles of clothing i tied up my head in my pocket handkerchief hoping that this might be some protection believing they would not tomahawk me without removing it which i supposed they could not do without awakening me thus i lay down by the side and under the same blanket with the indian who claimed me with fearful apprehensions that i should never again see the light of the sun but notwithstanding the cold the snow and rain and my perilous condition such had been the excitement of the day that i was completely overcome and very soon fell into a sound sleep and slept sweetly until morning the light of the morning was hailed with expressions of gratitude to a kind and merciful providence which had shielded me through such a night with the return of the day i had a return of hope that i should yet be spared early next morning we started on through the snow mud and water we had but little to eat and no opportunity to warm my clothing was scant and not sufficient to protect me against the weather we fell in with several small companies of indians some on foot and others on horseback none offering any violence or showing any hostility but all appearing anxious to look at me and make inquiries occasionally we heard a gun on the right or left but when we got into the vicinity of malden the firing was almost incessant it seemed that the whole face of the country was covered with indians rejoicing over a vanquished enemy i again began to feel that my condition was exceedingly perilous and that i was only spared from the tomahawk at raisin to be led to the slaughter at malden though i did not at this time fear so much from the indian that claimed me as his yet i had much to fear from 
the enraged and drunken savages which were to be seen in every direction a short time before night as we were passing an old house a squaw came out crying and commenced beating me with all her strength she smote me on my wounded shoulder and raised my temper for a short time i cared but little whether i lived or died i thought if this was to be my treatment whenever i met a squaw that i might as well give up at once and die this was however my first and last whipping from a female indian that night we lodged at the house of a frenchman whose family was very kind we went forward again next morning and that day we reached the home of this indian but on our way having to pass the vicinity of detroit the indians called at the house of the old frenchman who had stained his hands in the blood of young mr blythe at stony creek i have since learned that this was the name of the young man they held a long conversation which i could not understand because they conversed in indian the frenchman seemed to enter heartily into the spirit of rejoicing they smoked together and passed other indian compliments all of which i noticed particularly and not only that but marked the place and promised myself that if opportunity should offer to pay him for it from this point we left the main road leaving detroit to our right we soon passed through a large indian camp just as we were entering a company came in who had been at the battle of raisin bringing in their wounded in sleighs the one which i saw appeared to be very badly wounded and contrary to all indian custom or dignity of indian character was heard to groan but notwithstanding his extreme pain he cast a most savage look at me as the sleigh passed in passing this camp many indians came to the door of their tents to look particularly the young squaws under all the circumstances passing through just as they were returning from the bloody scene of raisin and also bringing in some badly perhaps mortally wounded i had fearful apprehensions i knew not what moment an enraged savage would take my life after leaving this camp at which we made no stay i felt greatly relieved believing there was some hope that we might pass safely on to our place of destination as well as i recollect we passed but very few indians after this but about sunset when within a short distance of our indian home in passing over a pond on the ice which at that time was covered with snow the horse slipped and fell but after some difficulty we succeeded in getting him on his feet again and soon reached the vicinity of camp which was announced to me by the indian commencing the war-hoop at the top of his voice which was responded to by a number of voices as loud and terrible as his own all seemed to understand it it was the sound of victory as soon as we approached near enough to be recognized every indian male and female went out all eyes directed toward us and every man and boy shouted to the extent of their ability my feelings by this time having recently witnessed so many scenes of blood and having passed through so many hair-breadth escapes myself 
had become almost deadened but upon the approach of this camp amid the shouts of savages and not knowing for what purpose i should be brought there unless to be a victim of sport for them i felt and this is all that i can say for to express what i felt i find to be impossible here we found the home of his wife and her father and mother who all seemed glad to see us the old squaw took me by the hand and led me into the hut and gave me something to eat which was in place i now began to feel that i had friends in this family and considered myself pretty safe we spent about two weeks at this place a few miles west of detroit a day or two before we left this encampment the indians determined on having a spree they went to detroit and traded for a keg of rum they had not been at home long till most of the men were drunk i now again felt myself in danger for one of them attempted to take my life i escaped because he was drunk and could not get to me that night the squaws hid me out in the woods behind a log in the snow they made me a bed of hay and covered me with their blankets when i awaked in the morning the frolic was all over the indians were lying about round the fires like hounds after a hard chase the whiskey was dying in them and they were sleepy and sick the indians now made ready to go out to their hunting ground and after a few days preparation we started as well as i am able to judge we travelled a west course we were upon the road about two weeks our sufferings were great from the intense cold and from hunger we had nothing to eat but what the hunters could kill by the way i rendered what assistance i could in catching raccoons and porcupines for these were our principal living whilst on the road i suppose we travelled one hundred and fifty miles before we reached our destination we now began to fare a little better though we sometimes still suffered with hunger it was either a feast or a famine with us the indians would eat up all the provisions with as much dispatch as possible and let every day provide for itself thus we spent our time for several weeks here i will give an account of a very aged man who i saw on our way out to this place there were many families on the way at the same time not only their wives and children but their young men this caused me to think that they did not expect any more war during the winter season it seemed that when their actual services were not necessary they were then left to shift for themselves this was in perfect character with all the doings of the british during the war we had been travelling near a week and our hunters were so fortunate as now to kill a deer we encamped at the foot of a hill so as to be screened by it from the keen northern blasts and have the benefit of the sun during our stay at this camp the old chief killed another deer which with raccoons and porcupines afforded us plenty of food the indians made an offering of the oil and part of the flesh of the deer to the great spirit by burning it this i took to be their thank offering for their success in finding a supply of provisions before they left the encampment they burned some tobacco 
The design of this I did not so well understand. Soon after we began to march, I saw the marks of a cane in the snow, and as the Indians do not use them, I suppose we were overtaking some prisoners. The second day after I saw the cane tracks, we came up with a company of Indians, and here I saw the old Indian who had the cane. The moment I saw him, my attention was arrested by his very grave and ancient appearance. His head was whitened over with, I have no doubt, the frosts of more than one hundred winters, and still he travelled and kept pace with the horses and young men from morning till evening. This was the most aged Indian which I saw during my sojourn with them. Their old men are much more vigorous and free from infirmity than ours. They walk erect and command great respect from all the younger. Their counsel is heard with profound attention and respect. During the month of March the Indians sent to their town for corn. We fared better now, but the corn did not last long so we were soon thrown back upon what game we could kill in the forests. From what I could learn, the Indians had adopted me into their family, in the room of a young man who had fallen in battle. Soon after we reached this, the place of our winter quarters, the father-in-law of my Indian dressed me up in Indian costume, made me a bow and arrows, and started me out with his boys to learn to shoot. I was then in the twenty-first year of my age. This was our exercise during the cold weather, and afforded me much amusement, as I had none with whom I could converse. We had many a hunt through the woods with our bows and arrows, but I could not learn to use them to much purpose. Sometimes I was permitted to have a gun and go on a hunting expedition, but was always unsuccessful. I could kill no game. I once saw the Indians proceed to kill a bear, which had holed himself up for the winter. The scratches upon the bark was the sign. They then surrounded the tree, and all being ready, they gave a loud yell. The bear appeared, we all fired instantly, and among hands the bear came tumbling down. Soon after this our old chief killed a very large bear, one of uncommon size even in that country, where they were large and plenty. He brought home part of it, and on the next day set out three of his sons, an old man who lived in the family and myself, to bring in the remainder. The snow was deep, and we had to travel three or four miles to the place. We took our loads and started to camp. The old Indian mentioned above had on snowshoes in order to walk without sinking. The toe of one of his shoes caught in a small snag which threw him face foremost into the snow, and being heavily laden with bear meat, the strap to which it was suspended came over his arms and made it very difficult for him to rise. Without thinking where I was and the danger I was in, I laughed at the old man struggling under the heavy pressure of his bear meat. Fortunately, he did not perceive me. One of the young men shook his head at me, giving me to understand that I was risking my life. I discovered that he was also amused, but was afraid to manifest it. Our hut was now well supplied with meat, 
the finest that the country could furnish. I flattered myself that we should not want soon again. But to my utter astonishment, our old squaw, my Indian's mother-in-law, sat up the whole night and cooked every ounce of it, and worse yet, to my great discouragement, the neighbors were called in next morning, bringing wooden dishes along with them, and after many ceremonies the whole was divided between the company who eat what they could and packed off the balance. There were times when we were very scarce of provisions. On one occasion, I remember, we had for dinner a small piece of bear meat, which I suppose had been sent in by some of the neighbors. Our old mother cooked and placed it in a wooden bowl, which was all the china we had. Our dog was looking on with interest, being nearly starved, and when the old lady turned her back, he sprang in upon the meat and started with it in his mouth. The old squaw, with great presence of mind, seized him by the throat to prevent him from swallowing it. She succeeded, and replacing it in the bowl, we, we ate it and were glad to get it. The Indian women are doomed to a hard life. They do the drudgery. In removing from one camp to another, they pack the goods and children, the men carrying only their guns. I have seen the women wade into the water to their waists in cold, freezing weather. Among the Indians I saw several persons who had lost the tip of their nose. This was strange, especially among the females. But since, when I was in Detroit, I learned that this was a mode of punishing adultery and fornication among some tribes, I am unable to vouch for the correctness of this statement. I will here give the reader a history of a corn dance which took place some time this winter. Our squaws had brought in some corn from the towns. The neighbors were called together, neither to eat nor drink, but to dance considerable preparations were made everything was removed from near the large fire that was burning in the centre the company consisted of grown persons only one was chosen to make music which he did by singing and rattling a gourd with shot or beans in it they danced round the fire in single file the men in front the women whilst dancing keep their feet close together and perform the exercise by jumping the men sling their arms most violently and awkwardly and stamp their feet so as to make the earth sound they kept up this exercise until a late hour in the night all seemed to partake of the joy which they considered to be of a sacred character it was a thanksgiving for a supply of corn and the near approach of spring this dance was finished by a young Indian selected for the purpose who performed the closing exercise with great animation. They now all quietly returned to their homes without taking any kind of refreshment. I soon became satisfied that man in a state of nature labored under many and serious disadvantages, particularly in the art of preparing their food though modern refinement has no doubt carried this matter too far we may with safety venture to say that man in an uncultivated state falls as far below what is fit and proper for human health and comfort as refinement has gone beyond 
the very best they could do is to make their corn into a kind of small hominy which they do by the very hardest method that of pounding it in a mortar and this labor is performed by the women after which it is boiled something like half an hour when it is eaten without salt or anything else with it but frequently it is prepared without this process by boiling the corn just as it comes from the ear until a little softened they seemed perfectly satisfied with this alone once or twice a day without anything else for they scarcely ever eat meat and corn at the same time but they eat most enormous quantities without any apparent rule as to time or quantity i have known them to eat several times heartily in the course of a few hours and perhaps the next day hunt all day without eating anything at all i think it probable that it would hardly have taken all that we saw and experienced to have satisfied even volney himself that the civilized is greatly to be preferred to the savage life at this camp i also witnessed the mode of cleansing their bodies they bent hickory poles in the form of wagon bows and covered them over with blankets they then took with them a bowl of water and a large hot stone two went in together they poured the water upon the hot rock and remained within fifteen or twenty minutes sometimes singing and rattling the old shot gourd they would then come forth covered with sweat and sometimes plunge themselves instantly into the river which was at hand perhaps it would be proper here to notice the mode of worship of the indians i speak only of the outer form i know but little of the object of their worship as i did not understand their language there appears to be some similarity between them and the jews their sacrifices and fasts are frequent their fasts are promptly and faithfully attended to only one member however of the family fasts at a time which he does for several days together eating nothing until the afternoon they treat their females at the birth of their children in a way to remind one of the jewish custom see leviticus twelfth chapter at such times let the season be as it may the woman is compelled to camp out in the woods by herself and there remain for a certain number of days and when she is allowed to return to the camp of the family she must cook in a separate vessel for so many days longer End of section 2